0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 31. We're going to be reading verses 23 through 29. Deuteronomy 31, 23 through 29. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Each week we turn to the Scripture, not because uh, if we were choosing which passage to do, we'd we'd work through Deuteronomy maybe on our own, but because we see that throughout the Scripture that what is lifted up is the glory of God, and so we turn and go through book by book. And here we are going through Deuteronomy, and we are in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-one this morning. And as we turn to hear God's Word, let's pray together. Father, would you please teach us your ways that we might walk in them, and unite our hearts that we might fear your name. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. But throughout history, there have been numerous famous and infamous leadership transitions. When you look at your newsfeed now, and we're still dealing with some of the repercussions and consequences of our last kind of administration moving on and the next one coming in and and all the fallout and uh, difficulty that that entailed. There's many of those that have happened in the past. Uh, One of the most famous ones was the transition from from President Buchanan to to President Lincoln where the the union is disintegrating and Buchanan is kind of lifted up as one of the, the worst presidents in American history. And then right after him is the one that is lifted up often as one of the best. And the transition in between those two, as the union is disintegrating, uh, wasn't a great one, as history records it. Uh, Another one was was when the, that I read about this week, was about the Clinton administration transferring to the Bush administration, and there was reportedly all sorts of damage done to the White House as they were leaving and transitioning to the Bush team, like pulling phones out of the wall. And one of the things that they said they did was they ripped all the W's off of keyboards in the White House. $15,000 $15,000 worth of damage that was just recorded in that transition. All sorts of difficulties can happen in leadership transitions, and, and Israel is a nation that, that wasn't immune to that either. You, you think about Israel's history, the, the transition from their first king, King Saul, to the, the man after God's own heart, King David, it was not a, a smooth transition. It was anything but a smooth transition. But well, then you move from David and you go to Solomon. Even, even this man, again, that was a great king in Israel, the man after God's own heart, and he, he's handing the kingdom off to his son, this, this man who's going to be the, the wise Solomon. And even that transition, that handoff, was a difficult one. And we had all sorts of things that they had to take care of, different loose ends that they had to wrap up because of all of the sin that was present in Israel already. And Israel here in Deuteronomy they are years prior to any king's coming, but they too knew of rough transitions. Think of their history. They're known for their father Abraham, and Abraham, and the blessing that God promises to him, the, the covenant that God makes with him, it's going to pass down from child to child, but we know that he has a couple different children, and even that transition from from who does the promise belong to, does it belong to Ishmael, or does it belong to Isaac, was a difficult thing to figure out, and for them to walk out, it had some Difficulty, or we think even of Isaac's own children. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Within the womb, they're already fighting. The firstborn comes out, and he's not the one that's going to receive the blessing. And that handoff from moving from Isaac and the blessing going to Jacob was a difficult one. Jacob's trying to go back to the Promised Land when he's with Laban, and that transition is a difficult one. And so, with all of this history and, and just the normal difficulty of major transitions between land and moving and leadership, uh, here we have Israel right there in the midst of a major transition, and it's a big moment for them. Moses has been preparing them for this. He's been preparing them for the major transition from life outside the promised land to life inside the promised land, and now he's preparing them for life, not just in the promised land, but life without him. And so he writes chapter 31 to the Israelites to give them strength and courage for what lies ahead strength and courage that's rooted in the the presence of God and the promises of God. They're going to go on into the promised land and they're going to go on without him, but they're not going to go on without a leader and they're not going to go on without the law and they're not going to go on also without themselves, an ongoing sin that's at work in their midst. Now Moses knows that chapter 31, his time is is very short and so he speaks to all of Israel very plainly about this. In verse 2, he says to them, I am 120 years old today and I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over over this Jordan. You could split up Moses' life into kind of three segments of 40 years. So the first 40 years he's in Egypt. The, the next 40 years he's in Midian. He's a shepherd in Midian after he'd left Egypt. And then the next 40, he goes to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and then leads them for 40 years in the wilderness. It's been anything but an easy life for him. And here he says, like, yeah, I'm I'm old. I'm no longer able to do the things I I used to be able to do. He's not who he once was. He's not able to carry on the responsibility of of leading Israel. Because of his age, because of all he's seen, he can't lead them into the promised land. But his age isn't the only thing keeping him from leading them on. It's the Lord who told him he couldn't go on. Why? And we find that in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20 This is where God had told Moses to speak to this rock so that water might flow out of it. Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, strikes the rock. And here's what the Lord says to Moses. Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the Lord that I have given you. It's because of his sin that he's not able to lead them onward. Not because he's 120 years old and and can't do what he used to be able to do. It's, It's because he sinned against the Lord. He didn't uphold the Lord as holy in the eyes of all the people of Israel. But Moses, he, he knows God to be a, a really gracious God. A God who will relent even of his wrath. He's seen this with the people of Israel. When, when God says, I'm going to destroy them, he, he steps in, he intercedes. And so he knows this God to be a God who is merciful and gracious, who will relent of his wrath. And so in Deuteronomy 3, if you remember this, Moses pleads with the Lord again. Perhaps maybe he'd be gracious to me and relent upon that consequence of my sin. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 23. He pleaded with the Lord, saying, O oh Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who could do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. That good hill country and Lebanon. I mean, 40 years in the wilderness will do that to a man, won't it? The 40 years of a rebellious people will make him long for something greater, something better. Please let me go in. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. And notice what Moses says here uh, from the Lord. The Lord tells him, he's angry with me because of you all. Uh, Moses puts the blame a little bit. He shifts it. He doesn't say, I can't go into the promised land because of my sin, but also because of your sin. So he can't lead them into the promised land because of his own sin and because of his solidarity with the sinful people who had also been a part in his sin against God. And so God says, Moses, you're not going to lead into the promised land. Now think about where this would have left these Israelites. My guess is that it probably would have left Israel feeling a bit vulnerable, a bit exposed. Moses had led them for 40 years. He'd led them through the, the tumultuous wilderness years where there's all sorts of instability everywhere and perhaps maybe the one thing that kept them steady throughout this time was a steady leader and yeah at times he could strike rocks instead of speaking to them, but for the most part he's a pretty stable guy and he's leading them faithfully and he's not going in this is the man who led them in the battle who'd given them direction who'd given them encouragement, who'd gone to the Lord on their behalf, who spoke to the Lord when they were afraid to. He'd the one who'd given them the law. He'd given them judgments from the Lord. He'd been with them and walked with them daily. He's not going in. For the first time in 40 years, they're going to go on, and Moses is going to stay behind. But God assures them in that moment that they're not going on alone. There's a new generation Apart from the generation that came out of Egypt, they're now at the edge of the promised land, and they're going to receive a new leader. Look at verse three. It says, "The Lord God himself will go over before you, and He will destroy the nations before you so that you shall dispossess them, and Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken." And what an encouragement in the midst of a major transition, right? Moses is not going, but you called in the biggest one you could call in to go over in front of you, and it's God. God is the one who's going before you. He's the one who's with you. In the midst of a major leadership transition, Moses saying, I'm not going, but the Lord is going. And it says that he's going before you, which expresses the, his guidance and his protection. In Exodus chapter 13, the same kind of phrase is used to speak of the Lord going before them. Look in chapter 13, verse 21 of Exodus. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And we know that this, this cloud that led them was, was certainly a guide to them, but also when they get to the Red Sea and they have the Egyptian army pressing down on them, what does this cloud do? It gets in between them and protects them. So this God who goes before is a God who who he guides, yes, but he also protects them. And not only is God going before them, guiding and protecting him, but listen to the promises that he repeats to them. You shall dispossess the nations in front of you, and the Lord will do to them, verse 4, as he did Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them, and the Lord will give them over to you. And you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you now the, the exodus to some of these people might be a little bit of a blurry memory right they were many of them were pretty young when that happened and so maybe the defeat of the Egyptian army might be a little bit of a fuzzy memory but Sihon and Og weren't not to any of them. this is a clear memory very recent God gave those people over to us the defeat of Sihon and Og wasn't unclear at all it was decisive listen to how it, it's described in chapter 2 Chapter 2, verse 32, Sihon came, came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Jahaz, and the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. we we'll look at verse 36, how he describes it again. The Lord our God, the end of verse 36, the Lord our God gave all into our hands. Or we'll skip down to chapter 3, verse 3, this is the defeat of Og, the Lord gave into our hand Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And so what Moses makes clear as they're going through this, is he gives the interpretation of the victories that they had won, and the interpretation is clear: God gave this victory. God is the one who worked this for us. He is the one who made this happen. It's the Lord who gave the, the people as they were going into these territories, and as they go into the promised land, that they're full of fear. That They they see the nations in front of them. They see their fortified cities. They know of their armies. They know of of even giants that dwell within the land. They have some justification in their fear. They're a small people, not numerous. They're not great and mighty warriors. They haven't been hardened by anything but the wilderness behind them. And they're going to these fortified cities, and so some of their fear seems a bit justified. But it's the Lord who goes before them. It's the Lord who just gave them the victory. And after all those victories, Moses encouraged them in chapter 3. He said to them, I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all the Lord your God has done to these two kings, and so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And he speaks those same promises to them again as he's transitioning leadership to Joshua. He speaks those same kind of promises again. Listen to what he says to them, verse 6 of chapter 31 Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. I love how God is so kind to not just say, Hey, be strong and courageous, and leave it at that. Don't fear and then stop. He adds the why. He says for. Here's what you need to do this for. Here's why you're to do this. You are to be strong and courageous. You're to not fear for. What are they to do this for? Be strong and courageous. Don't fear. It's not rooted in in their greatness. It's not rooted in their uh, ability as an army. It's not rooted in their size, their numbers, their power, anything like that. It's rooted down deep into the Lord. It's in His presence. His promises. That's The why of them to be strong and courageous and to not fear. I can remember as a kid always feeling when we were going different places just safe when my dad was around. I think that's maybe built into kids, right? They they feel safe. I feel protected when their dad's around. I'm trying to work that for my kids as well. Like when we're walking around, like I'm trying to, I hope they feel safe under my protection. I, I tell them sometimes when we've hiked trails, like if a bear comes out, like dad's up first. Right? I'm, I will be in between that bear and you guys, so don't fear. And if I go down, Reed, you're up, man. You know, like, <laughs> like, and, and they get sticks and rocks appropriately to help them combat said bear. And I hope that they feel safe under my protection. Like, hey, no matter what, like, if something is coming out, like Dad's going to get in between that and us first. And so I tell them, like, if I'm not worried... I mean, you don't need to be worried either, right? Like I'm up first, so if I'm not concerned about it, you don't need to be concerned about it. And although I'm sure my kids think I'm stronger and bigger and way more uh, quick or smart than I, than I actually am, the, the truth is is that I, I couldn't hold off a bear forever, right? I, bear versus me, like bears got the advantage, to say the least. My strength has all sorts of ends, right? Like it, it doesn't last long. And I can't be with them always. But Moses doesn't give them that kind of encouragement, right? He gives them something so much greater and deeper. It's the Lord who goes with Israel. This is the one who had shown and proven his power to them as a nation where they all could see the great works of God as he pulled them out of Egypt. He, he put on display to Israel, to Egypt, to the world, his greatness, his power, that he is this almighty God. He, he shows them as one who instantly defeated the host of Egypt. That he is stronger than the nations. He leads them into the wilderness. He sustains them while they're there with bread from heaven and his constant presence guiding them and protecting them. He is the one who had led them to defeat the kingdoms of Sihon and Og. And this is the one who tells them, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You're going to go into the land. You're going to dispossess it because I've promised. In other words, they should know when they hear those words, this is a God who can deliver on his promises. And if he's not fearful of the kings and the nations in the promised land, then Israel need not be. Be strong and courageous, he says. Now this is a promise for Israel as they go into the promised land. This is not a promise we can take in verse 6 and just immediately uh, slap on on some card for us and claim as, as our own, as if now God is telling us to be strong and courageous because victory is in front of us. But we do have a similar promise that is ours one that happens at a similar type time, a time of major transition, years later before we two were sent. A- after Jesus dies and is raised, he calls the disciples to himself on a mountain. And he is about to go over this major transition from his earthly ministry to his heavenly ministry. And, and as he does, he gives his disciples the great commission, right? And what does he promise them? Verse twenty chapter 28 in Matthew. Surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is Jesus promises to his disciples, those who have trusted in him, who believe in him, who are in him. He promises his presence always. And again, this isn't like me promising to protect my kids from a bear. This is the one who has all authority on heaven and earth. He just came through death. That's the one who says I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, the one with all authority. That promise, we can say, is ours in Christ. Yeah, we're to go out, we're sent out, not to the promised land, but to make disciples of all the nations. And guess what? Those nations, some of them are scary. And the people and the things that happen out there are frightening. But as we go, we go with the very presence of, of our king. Jesus promises that as we go, he goes with us. And if he's not fearful, and if he's not in dread, and he most certainly is not, then we need not be. Maybe you're facing some sort of major leadership transition in your own uh, own life. Uh, Let's say perhaps all the elders get you know, struck down by lightning and you're facing a major, like, what is the church going to do? All of our leaders are now gone. Or maybe you're, mo- you're moving and you're facing a move or a dramatic life change. or You have some sort of uncertainty that's out in front of you. You have a big task to take on in front of you. We can be strong and courageous in all of those things too for, for the one with all authority promised to be with us, to not leave us or forsake us. God, he doesn't promise us victory in our own terms, right? He doesn't say that everything you do is gonna be met with success. He actually promises something much, much better. He says, I'm with you. He promises his presence. It, it makes me think of the line from the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And the last verse of that says, that soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose, right? for rest, for comfort, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, soul, though all hell, shall endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Those words that are in line with biblical truth, are like they make me want to take the hill. They make me like, let's go, guys. We're taking the nations. Like, we're making this up. They're scary. We're puny. But God's with us. Let's go take that hill. And that's what they're meant to do. That's what Moses is trying to do with this encouragement here. He's saying, God's with you. Here's his presence. Here are his promises that he guarantees for you. They're meant to encourage Israel to go take the promised land. But Moses goes even further. He wants to encourage them by, by passing on the torch of leadership. Not just saying, hey, God is going with you, but sometimes that hasn't been enough for you because he's been with you this whole time and you've still kind of been a, a sinful and rebellious generation. But, but he's also sending a leader, one like me. And so he's going to pass the, tr- the torch off to Joshua with some of the same words, some of the same promises. Look in verse 7. Moses summons Joshua, and he says to him in all the sight of Israel, Joshua is this man who has been Moses' aide, his military commander, who's worked closely with him. And, and out of all the wilderness generation, Joshua is one of the few that has been faithful. You remember they sent spies into the promised land, and they come back and say, it's a great land. But we can't go in. It's scary. There's big giants in there. And there's only a few people that stand faithful upon God's promises in those moments. One of them's Joshua. The other one's Caleb. They kind of stand together. And so when Moses pleaded with God to go into the promised land, God told them, you're not going to do it. Instead, chapter 3, Joshua's going to do it. In chapter 3, verse 28, charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in the possession of the land that you shall see. You're not going in. You just pleaded with me to do it, and I said no, and I'm sending Joshua instead. And what you're supposed to do with that is not get bitter, not get jealous, but instead strengthen your brother. Like help him, encourage him, get him ready. He's to encourage him. And here in verse 7, that's what he's doing publicly. Like let's bring Joshua out in front of the people, and let's say some things over him publicly. So in verse 7, he calls Joshua, and he says, Be strong, Joshua, and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua, he receives these same kind of instructions and promises as Moses had just spoken over Israel. He's the one who's going to carry this forward. Strength and courage are in order because of those certain promises and presence of the Lord. All those things are to chase away fears in his life so that he doesn't dread, so he's not scared, so he's not nervous. And so here Moses declares these things over Joshua to prepare him, to prepare the people for what's going on in the future. Because they're going to walk forward into the promised land without Moses, but they're not walking without a leader. And so Moses is is trying to keep their confidence in the right place. The Lord's providing for all these things. He's going before you. He's got a leader. He's got his man ready to go. He's not going to leave you. And while Moses wants them to trust God and not fear, as he said a couple times, It's not as if he doesn't want them to fear at all. He wants them to have the right kind of fear. In verse 9, Moses wrote this law, and he gave it to the priests the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, And the sojourner within your towns, they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all of the words of this law. Now, what Moses is doing is he's preparing them to keep the law in front of them regularly, consistently. There's an actual time basis for, like, you need to all come together at a certain time and you need to have this word in front of you. This is a word that is meant to be written down as he does, it's meant to be read, and it's meant to be heard. And here's the purpose for that. Verse 12, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The the reading of the law, the very words that Moses has spoken over this generation, the reading of the law would remind them all of God's great acts of how he had pulled them from slavery in Egypt, how he had redeemed them, how he had spoken to them, of all of his great acts that he had performed for them and sustaining them. he would remind them of the great covenant that he had made with them, that he had come to them and he had committed himself to them. It would remind them of those covenant stipulations full of blessings and curses depending on how they respond to it. And all are to hear these things and they're to learn. They're hearing... And their learning are meant to lead to something. It's fearing. It says these things are meant to teach you to learn to fear the Lord. There's that word again, right? Fear of the Lord. And this fearing is an affectionate awe of God. It's a, a glad type trembling of fear before God. It's full of wonder of God and attraction to God. It's a fear that doesn't run away from God, but leans toward God. It's a fear that doesn't just hear of God's voice thundering from the mountain, and you feel the sense of dread. It's a fear that knows as that voice is thundering that this is a voice that is speaking to us, and that in itself is mercy, that we're not even dying as we hear it. It's a fear that grasps A sense of one's own smallness, littleness, and of the greatness and magnitude of this God. It's a fear that knows as the law exposes them of its own vulnerability. But it also knows at the same time of the mercy of God. And he says that when you hear the law, it's meant to produce, it's meant to teach fear. And what does this fear of the Lord do? These are always connected. The fear of the Lord leads to them doing the words of the law. Not just, they're not just hearing it, they're learning to fear God in their hearing of it, and then they're doing it. It leads to obedience. That is, life in the promised land is meant to be a life set up to have this ongoing exposure to the Word of God, to the law of God, that they might learn to fear Him more and more and obey Him in their lives. And so fear commands so far have run through this passage. Through 13 verses, we've had don't fear a couple different times, and Fear. Now, a couple different times. And and those two are definitely not disconnected. You see, if the fear of the Lord is learned, then all of a sudden you don't have to fear anything else. One author says it this way, to fear God is to wake up to who He is. If Israel wakes up to who God is, this creating, redeeming, sustaining, powerful, all-knowing God... And that should lead them to fearing Him. And because they know Him, because they're awake to who He is, fearing nothing else but Him. And the law, read and heard, shows them all of these things about God. That He is this creator, redeemer, sustainer, all-powerful, all-knowing God. It shows them all these things. It reveals to them His very character and nature. And so all these things, when they hear them in the law, they need to let them transition to their lives in reality church, we too need to wake up to who God is, that we too might learn to fear him and fear nothing else. How, how do we do this? We, we read, we, we hear, and we learn from this word because it's the, the scripture that, that it shows us who God is. This scripture is meant to wake us up to who he is, And when it does, it it never leaves us the same. It it leads us to fear him, but then start seeing all the other fears kind of shrink. There's many ways that you could see this throughout the course of Christian history and Christian brothers and sisters. One of them was Polycarp, an early Christian, and they were persecuting the church, and they went after Polycarp because he was one of the leaders of the church, and they thought, if we take him out, and if he can recant, then maybe that will be a domino effect and everyone else will then fall in suits. Well, they get a hold of the Polycarp and they say to him, I'm, I'm going to give you one more chance. You reject Christianity, you can recant, and you can avoid what's coming to you. You can avoid execution. And here's his reply. He said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Like, what makes a man say that? Like, he's almost, you can, I'm, I'm not there, right? I'm kind of reading into this. But, you know, you can almost sense, like, a sense of delight in this. Like, hey, yeah, the fire you're going to threaten with, that's not going to last long. Have you thought of the fires of judgment from God? Think about that. He's like a gospel nut, nutshell, right in there, right? Like, here's just a piece of it. There's judgment upon sin. I'm not facing that, though. And so mine's only going to last a while, so do what you will. What produces that? Where does that kind of stuff come from? Or the disciples, when they're threatened by people that can kill them, they say, I think we'll obey God rather than men. But what makes them do that? Some of their friends that died, they could look around and be like, no, persecution's a real thing. We might lose our heads. And they're like, well, we're going to obey God. Paul, he, he gets put in prison, and he's in there, and He's singing. And like what makes a man do that? Christians throughout the course of history, they, they face death without fear. They face death even with singing as they're put to their own death. What makes them do that? As they go to the stake, they're rejoicing. They're replying as, as polycarpists and saying, well, come do what you will. What makes that happen? That those saints, they're awake to who God is. And because they're awake to who God is, they fear God, and they don't fear other things, at least not in the same way. And if we wake up to who God is, we need not fear anything else. And we can start to learn the sense of what Paul says in Romans eight thirty-one, when he says, if God is for us, who could be against us? If we rightly know who God is, we're awake to who He is, we fear Him, then we can start saying, like, yeah, that's right. Like, if He's for us, fire, okay. Death, persecution, famine, sword, none of it none of it will have ultimate effect on me. So what are you afraid of? Whatever you're afraid of controls you. That's your Lord. And if it's anything but the Lord, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Take it to him. And just see how he compares. Like, sit down and think about your fears and compare them to the Lord. Are you scared of man? God says, don't be afraid of man and who has breath in his lungs. That's going to be taken away. Are you afraid of change? God is the eternal, unchanging one. Are you afraid for your health and safety? In him we live, we move, we have our being. And those in him who die, even though they die, they still live. Death is but the doorway. You're scared of the future? God is already there. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He reigns there too. All those things are just biblical truth. And they all just address different points of fear in our lives. And what they do is they wake us up to who He is, that we might start learning that our fears that we have that aren't God are actually pretty small fears. We can learn to fear the Lord. And because we fear the Lord, we walk in obedience to Him, and we trust Him. So Moses prepares them to be a people who can continue to learn to fear God. Because they go on without Moses. They go into a scary place in some ways but they don't go without God, and they don't go without his word, which reminds them who God is, what he's like, so that they might learn to fear him. So this chapter is is more though than just Moses preparing Israel. And God is also preparing Moses, and preparing Joshua. Look in verse 14. The Lord says to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua, present yourselves in the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua, they went, and they presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. So God's presence is known, right? And in verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. But how's that for comforting words in preparing for death? It's like we want to, at the midst of death, there's like this, I think, a good and right impulse to be like, hey, everything's going to be okay. And, and here, God brings in Moses, and he says, you're about to die. It's not going to go well. And we're looking forward, and we're seeing some unsettling words. Some tough words to hear. And notice the intentional description of their rebellion in the promised land. They're going to whore after other gods. God, who had set his love on Israel, redeemed Israel, bought them from slavery to make them his own. Made a covenant and covenant promises with them, spoken to them, entered into relationship with them. They, they're bound, as in marriage, in this covenant. Promise that God has given to them in this covenant stipulations and covenant blessings and covenant curses. God had done all that for them, and here's what He says is going to happen they're going to be an unfaithful spouse. They're going to commit spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery, I'll use that word instead of the word that God uses here, use it twice. Spiritual adultery accurately describes sin, it is a wicked forsaking of God for another. Israel, he doesn't tell Moses that Israel is just going to struggle with sin when they get in the promised land. They're going to wrestle with it. They're going to be led astray. They're going to wander from God. No, he says they're going to whore after other gods. We can try to sterilize our description of idolatry and sin all we want, but let's be clear. If anyone is living for someone or something other than God, if anyone is loving something more than God, anything, any one, if anyone is following something or someone other than God, that person is committing spiritual adultery. They are whoring after other gods. And the penalty in Deuteronomy for actual adultery was death. So what about spiritual adultery? And the Lord speaks to this, verse 17. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. They're going to face the consequences of their rejection of God. And they're going to do these things and face these consequences with full knowledge of their guilt. It's because we've not followed the God, the Lord our God. God adds to this witness, verse 19. He says, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against all the people of Israel. That's going to come in chapter 32, the song. So we'll learn it next week. But here's a witness. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me. And break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. And so Moses wrote this song the same day, and he taught it to the people of Israel. So this song that's going to be in chapter 32 is going to serve as a witness. In other words, Moses is saying, here's the song that we could call forth in court, and it would testify against you to your guilt against god it it would be it will be plain evidence of your known sin before a holy god but he's going to add to that verse 24 moses is going to finish writing the words of the law and he's going to command the levites they carried the ark of the covenant of the lord verse 26 he says take this book of the law put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the lord your god that it may be there for a witness against you for i know how rebellious and stubborn you are and behold, even today, while I am yet alive, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears, and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Moses may not be going on into the promised land with them, but God's word spoken through Moses, he guarantees that they're moving on with him. But because they're moving on, we're, we're reminded again, over and over again, that Israel is going in, and because Israel is going in, they're not going on without sin. There's ongoing problems. Israel's going to have the law written to them, and what the law is going to remind them of is that they don't add up, that they've broken it, that they've forsaken it that they haven't kept these words they haven't done what the lord had required of them and so god he gives this bad news of adultery as he's commissioning moses and joshua says here's what's going to happen guys doesn't look good i mean joshua is going to be leading like like if you think of covenant and and it being almost like a a reflection of marriage covenant like Joshua's going in with with not just a beautiful bride like he's going with bridezilla here like, when they get in there, it's, they're going to turn, it's going to be fast, and it's going to look ugly. Like, you thought everything was nice over here in the wilderness, and when we get over there, they're going to be whoring after other gods. It's not going to be pretty. God gives them a peek of what things are going to look like in the promised land, and it's a rough picture. I think when we see the picture of what's going to happen, it, it sheds a bit of light on, on God. And what He's endured with these people up to this point. And what he endures all the time is this all-knowing God. Here's a God who who knows what's going to happen in the future. He knows how Israel is going to rebel against him and reject him. And he's not striking them down right here, is he? he? God doesn't cut short the whole thing. He doesn't abandon them in the wilderness. So when God said earlier in Exodus that this is the Lord, the Lord, he's a God who's merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a God who shows it. He, he shows it in his enduring the sinful people for years, decades. He's gracious. He shows it in that he knows what's coming. He doesn't say, let's just not even go into the promised land. He doesn't cut this whole thing off. There he says over and over again in this chapter, even though they're going to sin, he says they're going to enter the promised land. I promise it. He's faithful to his promises. Oh, they didn't deserve it, hadn't earned it, they hadn't shown some sort of potential that one day in the future they're gonna be worthy of it, he's still gonna give it. He's gracious. He's faithful to all of his promises. How gracious is it, God, here, to guarantee the promised lands, to the promised land to those who will and are already in the process of leaving him. It's a gracious God. But perhaps I think God's grace might be most obvious in this passage. In his words that he gives to Joshua in the midst of this bad news in verse 23. Verse 23, he commissions Joshua and he says to him, not new words, he says, be strong and courageous for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. That's the third time we've heard those words. And and I think that this one just hits a bit differently. God is not just saying, you know what, you're going to lead this rebel crew into the promised land, and it's all going to go haywire, so good luck with that. Peace be with you as you go. He says in the midst of their future sin and rebellion, be strong and courageous. Lead them in. Because I'm not only going to just give them the promised lands in the midst of their rebellion, I'm going to be with you. You lead them, I'm with you. I was pretty disappointed when I found out that Philippians 4.13, that we can do all things through Christ's strength. I was pretty disappointed when I found out that that didn't mean that I was going to dunk. I was really hopeful that that might give me some power to get up 10 feet, slam a ball down. But I was excited when I saw what that meant in context. When Paul is saying, oh yeah, even when you can't dunk, I'm gonna be enough for you there. I'm gonna give you strength to endure there. Even when you don't have anything, Christ is in you, you can endure these things, he's gonna give you the power that you need to move through these things. And and. Here in verse 23 is something similar, right? It's not be strong and courageous, which means it's all going to go well, and everything's going to be victory and success for you all the time. No, it's be strong and courageous, and that's easy to like. We all love that, right? Like, here's a good one to, to slap on our lives. Be strong and courageous. Like, that sounds good. But in the context that God gives this to Joshua, it sounds a little bit harder. They're going to rebel. It's going to go bad. Be strong and courageous. And it's even better that way. Because here's what God is doing; He's pushing it down even deeper. Oh yeah, be strong and courageous. They're gonna go sideways, and I'm still gonna be with you. You can still be strong. You can still be courageous in the midst of this rebellion. I'm with you. So we get this major transition from Moses to Joshua. They get granted a transition from outside the promised land to inside, and it's met with this deep kindness from the Lord an enduring patience from him, his certain and sure promises, and his glorious presence. In other words, Moses gives them on the cusp of the promised land all that they need to trust God, to choose life in the promised land, to move forward in faith. He gives them all they need to be a people who are strong and courageous and who aren't going to fear. Now for us, this major transition doesn't get us ready for the promised land. It shows us the character of God. It shows us what He's like. And then we start to trace the character of God across, across other transitions all through the Scripture, and we start seeing over and over again, this is still what God is like. All through Scripture, major transitions, God is showing us His character, and perhaps there's no better way that we see His character than this major transition that takes place in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he's preparing His disciples the last remaining hours on his, of his earthly ministry, he prepares his disciples for his death that is going to happen. And, and as he prepares them, one particular stands out to me. He starts to prepare Peter. And he tells Peter what's going to happen and how they're all going to fall away from him. And Peter was like, hey, if they all fall away, I'm staying with you. And if I have to die, I'm staying with you. But Jesus prepares him for the transition that he doesn't know it's coming. He doesn't know how hard it's actually going to be for Peter. And so here's what he says to him in Luke chapter 22. He says, actually, you are going to fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter had the same weakness that Israel had. In that in the midst of this major transition, he lost faith. He lost trust. He wasn't bold. He wasn't courageous. He started to fear. And he rejected his God. But his God had prayed for him. So that when he turned, he could turn around and then strengthen his brothers. And this is what he does. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, after he'd failed, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance a promised land that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I love how it just, it's this and this and this. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. You're being kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this where you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You don't just get success. Success, success, and to be bold and courageous there. He says, no, stand, because you're going to face some trials, but that tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls. Peter turns to strengthen his brothers. We are included in that midst today as we hear Peter's words rolling down on us. See, we can take strength from Peter. We too have a promised land, and he says that it's imperishable, it's unfading, it's kept for you, and you're kept for it. That's what's happening here. That's the kind of God we serve. His presence in the midst of all this, even fiery trials, is with us. So church, let's be strong and courageous and not fear because the Lord is with us always. Let's pray together.
2: God, we don't know why you would take such an ugly wife to be yours. We are all Bridezilla, as Dylan said. We're unworthy of your love and your forgiveness. And most of all, your presence that you would dwell with us and in us and that our sin would not drive you away, but is the very thing that brings you to us. I don't understand that. I'm not like you. We're not like you. We are uh, repulsed by others. We judge them. We're harsh with them. We can uh, constantly look down or hold them to standards that we don't fulfill. Lord, we want to be more like you. We want to be loving and gracious and forgiving, and patient, and gentle. And we also want to be holy. And we know, like Peter said, we have everything that we need to do that. We have you, you've given us yourself. So God, will you please draw us forward and compel us to trust in you and to fear you above all things. We're so afraid. Of various things in this world of people and pleasing them of circumstances that are out of our control of the future. And you're ahead of us on all of these things you hold the universe in your hands, we have nothing to fear, but you and that fear is a fear that pulls us in and lets us lean on you. It's not a fear that drives us away, God. Thank you for your love. God, I pray that you would pull in today anyone who thinks they're not worthy of you, or not, and that's not how it works. Thank you for setting your love on us despite our sin and giving us a new name. We can't wait for you to come back and to live in the promised land with you forever. Let us be faithful and strong and courageous until that day comes. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.